Listen to this reading from Isaiah 58, 1 through 9. Shout out. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast? But do you not see? Why humble ourselves? But do you not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with the wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast I've chosen, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the throngs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from his own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guide. Then you should call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of Scripture together this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to our own hearts. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this text, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I mentioned at the outset of worship that I've been sitting with this uh, title from Sky Jathani's little book, which he wrote on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've not looked at it or you might be interested in doing further study, it's a, it's a good little resource uh, to have. But he is, his book is, is simply titled, What If Jesus Were Serious? What If He Is Serious? Uh, it's a clever title because, of course, Jesus is serious. But seriously, um, think about all the ways in which you and I don't take him seriously. And how would taking Jesus seriously, that is taking him at his word, utterly reorient the way we actually live life? How we live with the uncertainties of life, how we live with relative wealth or relative poverty, how we live uh, in spaces in which we discover differences in our household, among the members of our household, or between the extended members of our family. Some of you are discovering that these days. How do we live with these differences differently if we take Jesus seriously? How does it help us to live with grief and loss or to live within this particular moment of American politics or with the violence of our neighborhood, our cities, our world, with the sad reality of a church that is as divided as the country? What if Jesus is serious? My knee-jerk reaction when I hear that title is to have a little bit of a twinge of fear or guilt and maybe even a little bit of shame. Now, why do I go there? Simply because when you ask that question, I almost immediately begin to think about the gaps in my life. I look at my life and I think of all those areas in which my values are a lot more like the broken values of this world that are a lot easier to condemn from the sidelines than actually to live in a beatitude kind of way. I think about these gaps, these spaces where my values, my dreams, uh, my way in the world is animated far more by the brokenness of the world than the presence and the reality of who Jesus is. If I'm honest, I have to admit that I live like a practical atheist a lot of times. But what if the thing that Jesus is actually most serious about is not our condemnation, but rather our liberation? Jesus' message of repentance is an invitation to hope for the hopeless. You're facing the wrong direction, he says. You're aimed in a direction that's actually hurting your life and hurting other people. You don't know God. Let me reveal him to you. Let me show you what the good God is like. Do a U-turn turn towards him and toward the kingdom that's come near in me. The seriousness of Jesus, I think we can say, is the most gracious gift that God has ever given the world. And so think about that as we think about the text that we just read. Salt, light, and righteousness. All right, so salt and light. Remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon that Jesus gives to the masses. These aren't people in high places. These are ordinary citizens, ordinary individuals in the society, many of whom had benefited perhaps from healing or been brought near because they'd experienced the love and the forgiveness that he ushered in for the forgiveness of sins, for example. And so here they are gathered around listening to Jesus in this particular spot. They're the curious, not the powerful. And in this first moment, Jesus offers sort of a blowing critique of Israel itself. He says, you're not salty. You are the salt of the earth, but you're not salty. You're the light of the world, but you're not light. This is Jesus, the political revolutionary, if you will, critiquing the power that be, right? He's, artic he's speaking here truth to power in a sense. 
So think about this metaphor of salt and light as Jesus applies it then to Israel, but I think we need to remember that it applies to God's people throughout time and history, wherever they are and in whatever context they live in, it speaks to us as the church in our particular day because salt and light has to do with the vocation of the church, the vocation of God's people in time, across time, in a world that isn't what it ought to be and isn't what it will be according to God's promise. So think of God's call, if you will, to Abraham. Maybe that's a good place to begin. It's that moment when God calls Abraham out, but for the sake of the world. Remember that he says, this childless man that you and your wife Sarah will have a child, you will become a great nation. And much more than that, he says, right? He says, through you, through this nation, I will bless the earth. It's a really bold statement. It's not a promise about Israeli exceptionalism. It's not a promise about anyone's exceptionalism, exceptionalism and certainly not our exceptionalism. This is about being a people that live for the sake of others wherever they live as a source of blessing so that they may flourish as well. So think about salt for a moment. It's not a question of being savory or a sweet-toothed person, right? This is not what salt is about in this particular context. Salt in the ancient world was a way of preserving food. It's still a way of preserving food in our world. I love prosciutto, and many of you do as well. And my people in the South, why we love a nice country ham preserved with salt. Jesus is saying, as he thinks about this metaphor of salt and God's people, that you're a preserving influence in society. There's something about you that is meant to push against the world's injustice, the world's violence, the world's selfishness, the abuses of power that we see and experience in our world, the hatred as it shows up and pops up in our world. You are meant to exist in such a way that that doesn't spoil everything. Hold back decay. The presence of God's people is a preserving influence as we seek justice and demonstrate the goodness of God in a land like ours, in a place like ours. And this isn't about moral superiority, though I think sometimes when we hear it or sometimes when we've practiced this, We've sort of embraced that methodology. We've looked down our nose at those who may be living differently or who are outside the pale of our particular values. This rather is about showing up in the world differently. It's about showing up in the world for the sake of the world, for the sake of the poor, the invisible, the overlooked in society. It's about speaking truth to power quite often. It's about taking Jesus seriously and so in such a way that we actually begin to reveal the goodness of the good God, his glory to the world as we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God, as the prophet Micah put it. Or take the metaphor of light. Similarly, I think it's important for us right out to point out, this again is not about any sense of moral superiority that Christians or the church should have as it exists in the world. It's not about having all the right answers. I think we can admit that people that seem to have all the right answers and people that live with a sense of moral superiority do no one any good. This rather is about embodying in our community and our life together 
the very presence of Jesus so that individuals that get near us or that we get near experience a foretaste of the very things that God is talking about when he promises his kingdom will come. So that those who are lost or, you know, think of it as you're in a dark room and someone flips on the light or those that can't find their way because life feels confusing. I know that I've felt that way at times and I know that many of you have felt that way at times. It's about the lights coming on and suddenly you see a path that actually is available to you and that you can walk in it. That's the picture that Jesus is offering those individuals that were first listening on the hillside I suspect they weren't like me, filled with shame or fear or guilt, but rather suddenly they're filled with hope because here is someone who is calling out the darkness that exists in the very people that ought to be light. These are things we should say that we don't simply do for ourselves, but rather that we practice for the sake of others. You can imagine that persons that embody and practice the Beatitudes that we looked at last week would be individuals in a world that are both salt and light, as Jesus himself was salt and light. And so Jesus' critique is quite important. The Israel of Jesus' day was dominated by power politics, by religious and political factions of a variety of sorts. They couldn't get along. They couldn't agree with one another. And it was also populated with revolt and moments of military revolt and hoped for military revolt as we think about some of the hopes that were placed upon Jesus himself or some of the fears that those in power had of Jesus. Jesus is urging us, however, to be different. And he says, these people, the way that you've seen kingdom embodied is not salt and it's not light. I think if we're honest, that Jesus would probably level a very similar critique to the church of our day, certainly the evangelical church in America today, because it seems like we're pretty compromised in so many different ways. The most public face of the evangelical church, I'm not disputing that there aren't places of faithfulness, and I certainly hope that we're attempting to be a community of faithfulness, that we are salt and light. But I think we have to be honest that the most public and loud face of the American evangelical church seems pretty compromised, seems to have embraced an ends justifies the means as a way of settling ethical scores or settling the values of who gets to win in this or that election. And this is something that Jesus just simply condemns outright. One of the best things that we can do in a moment like this is actually repent of the ways in which we've not been salt and light, ways in which we've participated in the very fabric of that which Jesus condemns in his moment, and I think in ours, salt and light. But then secondly, this text sort of begins to talk about righteousness, right? Uh, he says essentially that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now again, in my ears, when I hear this, it, that feels super heavy, right? It feels like, whoa, this is like, what are you putting on me? What burden are you adding to my life? Think about it this way, it's hopeful. How is it hopeful? On the one hand, Jesus is simply saying that this new order that he's come to bring, that he's inaugurating himself, it isn't new at all in one sense, that it's of one piece, one part of the fabric 
of all that has gone before that God has spoken to the people of Israel throughout their history. This fits the promises that God made throughout time to Israel and that are recorded in the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is essentially saying that that promise that shines in that part of the scripture finds fulfillment and rest in him that his kingdom is of one piece with all that was promised before. And so we shouldn't think that he's come to make anything easier in one sense if we think that means living without those things that God says. But in this is, this, this is so important here. Jesus seems to be saying that the fulfillment that he promises and that he's bringing and making possible is far more extensive than any of the religious experts of Israel either lived themselves or was even capable of describing. This isn't just more of the same. Jesus hasn't come to bring a kingdom of the status quo. He's not a a revolutionary on the sidelines that can sort of identify what's wrong and sort of target a population and speak to them so that they feel like they've been heard and then once empowered, does nothing. Jesus says, no status quo in the kingdom of God. N.T. Wright says that this tension is common to every political revolution that has ever happened. It's one thing to speak from the sidelines to critique, but it's quite another thing to actually come into a place of power and be more than bluster. It doesn't go away, it doesn't simply sort of let its ideals and its values go the way of the world of the status quo. So think about the Pharisees and the scribes for just a moment. Near the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 23, Jesus has some rather pointed ways of describing them. And in chapter 23, he says this. He says, they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay those burdens on people's shoulders. But they themselves, they're not willing to move them with their own fingers. Heavy burdens the religious leaders, the very persons that ought to be inviting people to a path that they could get on are actually burdening people with all of their talk, with all of their religious bluster. The status quo is a problem, and we have seen that throughout the history of the world. You pick any generation, any moment in history, and what will you find? You will find individuals that think they figured out a solution, often driven by their own sense of narcissistic pride and entitlement, and they come to places of power, and they don't accomplish the good that they've articulated. We look across American politics, and I think we find evidence of very much the same thing. We look across the church and its internal politics and the way we sort of divide up the world of Christianity in our denominational squabbles and our different squabbles around ethics. And what does it also seem that it's just a lot of bluster and not a lot of embodiment of the love of Jesus? Not salt, not light. A rightness that is merely more of the same broken reality that everyone is burdened by. The masses suffer in this particular moment because they're almost always the majority of folks for whom the world has not worked. There's no hope for them. And yet Jesus here, in this moment of critique, he says, I get you. I hear your burden. I understand your burden. And it's different this time. 
It's different this time. Think about that for a moment as you think about this text principally being about Jesus and the revolution that he's actually bringing by revealing to us the God who's previously hidden to us that we don't know, by revealing to us the very good kingdom of this God, this world flowing with milk and honey in which we embody something like the Beatitudes that we looked at last week. Jesus is saying the integrity of the government of the world, of the order that he will initiate through his presence is substantive. It's not more of the same. And so in just a few chapters later, Jesus undoubtedly still burdened with the burdens that you and I carry in our lives as we listen to the religious authorities who just lay more burdens on us and the political authorities who lay more burdens on us and on and on it goes. Jesus says there just very simply this, come to me, come to me. It's that same message of repentance if you wanna think about it that way. It's that same urging that those that were hearing him would do a U-turn from whatever place of power they were previously looking to for their hope and their confidence of a future. Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls in coming to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, what if Jesus is serious? <laughs> I hope he is. Because Jesus is articulating a kingdom that all of us, if we rightly hear him, and if we rightly begin to experience the love of God that has come near us, who looks on us and he says, you are my beloved, my favor rests upon you. If you understood the love that God has for you and you begin to respond to him by coming to him and you find rest for your souls and you cease from your own sort of efforts of running and running and running, trying to carve up an identity through all of the other sources that you look to, whether they are political, whether they are vocational, whether they are relational, but if you would begin by coming to Jesus, that's where the revolution begins because God so loved the world that he gave the Son. May God give us grace to hear what he's saying to the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.